0: If you have your Bible, please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 13. If you noticed in your bulletins, the sermon is titled, Yay! More Eschatology. Uh, This will be our final sermon on Mark chapter 13 concerning eschatology and Jesus' teaching on eschatology. If you're able to stand, please stand for the reading of a word, and then we'll examine the text. We'll pick up in verse number 14. Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetops not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, Do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of the word. May your son be glorified in the sermon that is about to be preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In 168 B.C., Antiochus IV the ruler of the Seleucid Empire invaded Germany, or invaded Israel. (laughs) I've been off for two weeks. Okay, I'm a little rusty. Invaded Jerusalem and captured that city. Well, they probably invaded what was known Germany at that time as well. I, I don't know. Probably. Thank you. Inside the Jerusalem temple, Antiochus IV erected an image of the Greek god Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar. This provoked a small contingent of Jews led by the Maccabean family to revolt against the Greeks. After a series of battles, the Jews gained control of Jerusalem and they kept their city for the next 100 years until Pompey, a Roman general, captured the Holy Land and brought it under Roman rule. Fast forward to A.D. 66. And although the Romans permitted Israel to practice their religion, the Jews became increasingly frustrated with the Romans' practice of paganism. Combine that with Rome's oppressive taxation... And their unwanted imperialism, the Jews decided to break away from their captors, from their oppressors. So the Jews began another series of revolts against Rome. The Jewish army numbered about 24,000 men. The Romans brought only 30,000 of their soldiers to fight. At first, the Jewish military was successful, they pushed Rome out of the city. The next two and a half years was a back and forth between Israel and Rome, but finally in A.D. 69, after the Emperor Nero died, his successor, Vespasian, sent his Roman army, led by his son Titus, into Jerusalem on the day of Passover, A.D. 70. Since it was the season of Passover... Visitors from all over that part of the world attended the feast. And when the Passover was over, the Roman military blocked their visitors' exit from the city. They refused to let them leave. And so Jerusalem's food and water supplies were quickly depleted. By the end of the summer in A.D. 70, August A.D. 70, the general Titus broke down the walls of Jerusalem... He burned the temple. The city was ruined. The Jews fled. Eventually, those Jews who fled were captured. They were killed. Over a million of them were killed. A hundred thousand of them were kept as slaves, Roman prisoners. And among the captors, one of the captives was a man named Josephus, who became a Jewish historian. The temple was destroyed, leaving only the western wall which still stands today. And then after his death, the Romans built a monument dedicated to Titus on the Via Secor, the most popular street in Rome. What's the point of these two stories? Why mention Antiochus IV and the abomination of the temple in AD 168? And why mention General Titus of Rome and his abomination of the temple in AD 70? Because I believe those two abominations were types of the abomination of desolation that Jesus is warning us about here in our text. That there is another abomination of desolation. The ultimate fulfillment is still coming. Those abominations of desolations were only a type, a prefigure of the ultimate reality that is still to come. And when this abomination of desolation occurs some point in the future, Jesus warns that there will be a great tribulation, a time of great tribulation. And the man of lawlessness will have come, the Antichrist. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord instituted the Sabbath rest. On the seventh day, the Scripture says, the Lord rested from His work and He imposed a Sabbath upon Adam and Eve. And then with Moses and the Israelites, the Lord was pleased to include a Sabbath rest in the Ten Commandments. When Joshua and the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan, they kept a Sabbath rest to the Lord. King David in the Psalms, he speaks of another Sabbath rest that was unlike those already in progress. So besides the Sabbath rest at creation, besides the Sabbath rest with Moses and the Ten Commandments, besides the Sabbath rest with Joshua and those who enter the Promised Land, King David spoke of another rest, one that is to come. And so all these other rests were a type of a rest that's still to come. They were a type of a greater reality. Not only that, the Lord's day today is a type of rest for the people of God. We rest from our works on this day and we rest in the works of Christ that he did for us on our behalf. But according to Hebrews chapter 4, there's still a rest for the people of God. It's an eternal rest in our eternal home. So all of those sabbath rest are just a type of an ultimate reality they prefigure a rest that's still to come. And that's what this abomination of desolation is. The principle applies to this. Yes, what Antiochus IV did in 168 BC to the temple was an abomination, but only a type. What Rome did to the temple in AD 70 was an abomination, but only a type. I believe that those two abominations prefigure a greater abomination that's still to come. We're still waiting for it. According to Jesus, a man will walk in, he'll step in, or he'll appear in the temple of God. And he will desolate it. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Right, Paul saying, don't be deceived although there are some who are saying the second coming has already happened, the day of the Lord has already happened, it ain't come from us, don't believe them. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of Jesus' return, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him, the man of lawlessness, what's restraining him now, so that he may be revealed In his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. According to the Apostle Paul, the revealing of the man of lawlessness precedes the coming of the Lord. So before Jesus returns, the man of lawlessness comes. He comes first. The Antichrist. That is the man of lawlessness. That is historically, traditionally what he is known as. The Antichrist. So prior to the second coming of Christ, the Antichrist comes. And how does he come? Paul says, by the activity of Satan. With all power, false signs false wonders, with all wicked deception. And the world, deceived by him, rejects the truth, follows after him, and the Antichrist, because of that, he's able to build an army. He's able to build an army
1: against the Lord and his church. Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 15.
0: The apostle John said, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What precedes the coming of the Lord? Satan, the two beasts, the second of the two beasts is a false prophet, he's the Antichrist, and they form an unholy trinity. And they go about deceiving the whole world, and they assemble the world together against the Lord and against His anointed.
1: Psalm 2. And now, how
0: does this battle end? The Scripture says the Lord returns. Behold, the Lord says in Revelation 16, I am coming. Now if we go back and look at Matthew 13, can we put this up on the screen guys? I'm sorry, Mark 13. Mark 13 beginning in verse number 9. Jesus says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial... And notice that these things take place, according to Jesus, prior to the abomination of desolation. Because the next section of Mark 13 talks about the abomination of desolation. Jesus warns the church of these signs, and they're pretty bad. The church will be persecuted, there will be great apostasy, false Christians will turn away, members will turn against own family members, This season of persecution against the church. But notice that Jesus says the gospel must go into all the nations prior to the abomination of desolation. That wasn't AD 70. Although the gospel was on the move and spreading far and wide, it hadn't reached the whole world. It hadn't reached all the nations. Unless you don't take that term literal. All the nations, every tongue, every tribe, which is typically how the Bible interprets the nations.
1: The major theological councils didn't even take place in the 4th century. Even by then, the gospel had
0: had not gone out to all the nations. The 3rd and 4th centuries are considered some of the worst persecutions and sufferings that the church Had experienced. According to Jesus, these seasons of suffering pale in comparison of what will take place at the abomination of desolation. Look what Jesus says in Mark 13:19. Huge. For in those days, referring to the abomination of desolation, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. The worst time of suffering will be at the time of the abomination of desolation. When the abomination of desolation occurs, it will be the worst season, the worst experience of tribulation and suffering the world has ever seen, especially for the Christians. Again, listen to Paul's words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, unless this great apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. According to Paul, what is the timeline of Jesus' return? A period of great tribulation, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. This man of lawlessness is the son of destruction. He opposes God, he exalts himself as God, and he proclaims to be God. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, Satan will empower him to deceive the nations, to speak blasphemies, to persecute the church. And this period of tribulation, according to Jesus, will be worse than any other time. In fact, it's called the Great Tribulation. But Paul promises that Jesus will return at the end of that time to destroy the man of lawlessness and his army. And so who is this man of lawlessness? Who is this abomination of desolation? The man of lawlessness is someone who proclaims to be God, he blasphemes the Lord, and he commits egregious acts of idolatry. The abomination of desolation, he is a person who commits an egregious act of idolatry. The term abomination appears over a hundred times in the Old Testament, just a handful of times in the New In Scripture, when you see the term abomination, it can refer to sexual immorality like homosexuality, but mostly the term abomination refers to idolatry. In fact, six times in Deuteronomy alone, the term abomination is referring to idolatry. What Antiochus IV did in 168 B.C., when he sacrificed swine on the altar of God, he set up a statue of the Zeus, the Roman god, or the Greek god in the temple. That's idolatry. What Roman general Titus did when he tore down the temple and he erected statues of the Roman gods in the temple. That was idolatry. But what the man of lawlessness does, the Antichrist, By desecrating the temple, he also commits an egregious act of idolatry. Even worse than what Antiochus and Titus did. According to Paul, he proclaims to be God and he sits down in the temple of God. He exalts himself above all gods, so-called gods, above all things worship. And Paul says he sits down in the temple of God
1: but I don't think the term temple means
0: what we think it means here. If Paul is speaking of a literal temple, that the man of lawlessness, when he comes, he walks into the temple of God, what has to be set up? The temple of God. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So if Paul is speaking of a literal temple here, what year is he talking about? Sometime before A.D. 70. If the man of lawlessness came in A.D. 70, what soon follows after his appearance? The second coming. So if this man of lawlessness sits in the literal temple in A.D. 70, Jesus has already come back. The great tribulation has already happened. But we don't believe that. We don't believe the second coming has already happened. And so Paul can't be referring to a literal temple when it comes to the man of lawlessness. So what is he talking about when he says the man of lawlessness sits in the temple? He's referring to the church. He's referring to the body of Christ. In Paul's letters, in the New Testament, when he refers to the temple, it's never about a building. It's never about an actual structure. When Paul uses the term temple... In his letters, it's always the people of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Paul says, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, again, Paul says the church is the temple of the living God. In Ephesians chapter 2, For God by the Spirit. Who's the temple? Jews and Gentile believing. The believing church. Clearly Paul is saying that the church, believers, the body of Christ is the temple. Why? Because he knows and he understands that when Jesus says, this is my body, destroy it and I'll raise it again in three days, he's referring to the temple. The the church distanced themselves from the temple. When Jesus cursed the temple and He says it's going to be destroyed, they distanced themselves from that structure because they realized the temple was just a type. The fulfillment, the reality of God's dwelling place is what? You! The body of Christ. We're the temple. And that's how the New Testament apostles Use the term temple in their writings. It's the body of Christ. And it's not just the Apostle Paul. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Obviously, John is not saying believers are actually a pillar, an actual pillar in this structure. He's saying that those who do not give up the faith, who do not turn their back on Christ during the tribulation, they will become a pillar in the temple, in the church, in the body of Christ. That when the new Jerusalem is created and the presence of God dwells there, those who survive and do not give up their faith in times of suffering and persecution, they will be a pillar in that body of Christ. Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, They survive the tribulation, and God gives them seats of honor in the church when the new heavens and the new earth come. Christians who endure the great tribulation, they become pillars of the temple in heaven, the body of believers. Because they stand firm against the Antichrist. They remain faithful during a time of great rebellion and a great apostasy. And so the apostles use the term temple to refer to the church. And that's how Paul is using it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, he will come by great power. He'll be given authority to perform great signs and wonders. He'll speak great blasphemies against the Lord. He will announce himself as God, the one true God. And he'll sit in the temple of God, meaning he pretends to be a part of the church. But in reality, he deceives many,
1: and he's actually a false prophet. How is that not the Pope? Right? Doesn't the Pope appear to be
0: religious? Hasn't he fooled the world? The Roman Catholic Church isn't the church, but don't millions and millions of people believe the Roman Catholic Church is the true church? People have been deceived. Hasn't the office of the Pope deceived millions and millions of people? Listen to what the Baptist Confession says. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. By the Father's appointment, all authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, and order and govern the church. The Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be the head of the church. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Who do they believe the Antichrist was? He would be the Pope. All the reformers believe the Antichrist would occupy the office of the Pope. According to the Roman Catholic Church, they believe they are the one true church. And they believe the head of their church is the Pope. And the Pope is a blasphemous office. Blasphemous office. His own titles. His own name. Blasphemous. The term Pope is from the Latin term Papa, which means father. Who is our spiritual father? Jesus says, let no one call any man father. Because we have one father. The Pope is called the Pontiff which refers to the high priest, a mediator between God and man. Who is the one mediator between God and man? The Pope is called the vicar of Christ, the substitute, according to Scripture. The substitute is who? The Holy Spirit. His names, his titles, blasphemous.
1: In him, we have this unholy trinity.
0: The Pope blasphemes the Father, he blasphemes the Son, he blasphemes the Holy Spirit, he is the man of lawlessness, he is the Antichrist. And I believe he's also the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. Earlier I mentioned Antiochus IV and the Roman general Titus. They are just types of the abomination of desolation. Do they desecrate the physical temples? Absolutely. They erected false images of false gods in the temple once they took possession of the building. But the Antichrist is the ultimate fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. And what he does is worse because he tries to inject himself into the church, the true temple of God. And according to Jesus in Mark 13, the abomination of desolation is a person. Jesus says, and where you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not. It's a person. And the person is the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness. And so when the Antichrist, the Pope, is raised up, and he declares himself to be God, and he tries to usurp Christ's power over the church, the church will stand firm Great tribulation will happen over the world. As God's people remain faithful to Christ and we remain faithful to the gospel, there will be a time of suffering that has never been, never seen before, and never be anything like it. The temple's destruction in AD 70 was just part of the birth pains. But the end is not yet. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Great cataclysmic events. But they are just the beginning of birth pains. False believers will begin to persecute true believers. The church will take the gospel to all nations. Then all nations will join in on that persecution. As the church preaches the gospel to all these nations, they won't be converted. They'll kill you. Unbelieving family members will turn their backs on their believing family members. They'll start bringing you to the government.
1: They'll rat you out for worshiping the Lord. Time of great
0: tribulation. Then the Antichrist will come. The abomination of desolation, and with him will come unprecedented tribulation. He'll be able to form signs and wonders, lead the world astray, but not the true church. And immediately following this period of great tribulation, Christ promises to return. And he'll gather his church from the four corners of the earth. But those who are dead, both those who are dead, those who are alive, and then the end will come. But in the meantime, while all these things begin to take place and the chess pieces are put into motion, the church needs to be awake. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, after the Apostle Paul explains the coming of the Antichrist, he says to the church, continue in the traditions of the Apostles. How do you stand firm, church, during this time of unprecedented tribulation, time of great suffering, how do you stand firm? And Paul says, listen to us. Do what we tell you to do. And the Lord will be pleased to strengthen your faith, to guard you from falling away. Some of these apostolic traditions that Paul talks about is in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the gospel. The gospel makes us stronger. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul mentions the Lord's Supper. Two traditions, two apostolic traditions that will help you stand firm as long as you do them and remember them and teach them to yourself. They're God's means of grace. As you sit under the preaching of the gospel, as you participate in the Lord's Supper, God is pleased to strengthen your faith, to guard you against apostasy, to make you strong for the day of salvation. God uses the preaching of the word. He uses the Lord's Supper to increase your faith, to make it stronger in times of suffering, so that you would not fall away, so that your foot will not slip. That's why this thing's important, what we do here. God uses the elements of worship to make you stronger so that when a period of persecution and suffering comes to your doorstep, you're not led away by them, but you remain strong
1: until the Lord returns.
0: As we participate in the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you all that this... This supper is for believers only. It's for those who made professions of faith, who have been baptized, who believe the gospel, receive the gospel. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. Obviously, his, his physical body wasn't broken. The scripture says his legs were not broken on the cross. The bread being broken symbolizes the sufferings that he endured, the sufferings he endured. The emotional suffering, the mental, the suffering of the soul. And then the cup represents the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The inner circle is wine. The outer circle is great juice. If you are a believer in Christ, you are welcome to participate in this meal. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing upon the Lord's Supper. As it goes about, Lord, and it passes before us, Lord, we pray that we remember the great sacrifice that Christ endured for us. The great suffering he endured, the cost of this salvation, Lord, was the life of your very own Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience to the Father, your desire to be sent, your willingness to be sent. The willingness that you endured, Lord, to suffer on our behalf and to die for our sins, Lord. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, for raising up the Son from the dead along with the Father and the Son. All three persons of the Trinity raised them up from the dead for our justification. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for living inside of us and dwelling inside of us, teaching us the truth, guarding us from heresy, guarding us from false teaching, always lighting the way, Lord, for us to follow after you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. and We love you, God the Father. In Jesus' name we pray.